from Thomas Watson's The Ten Commandments, Part 3, The Law and Sin. Part 1 of Part 3, Man's Inability to Keep the Moral Law. Question, is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. James 3, 2, in many things we offend all. Man in his primitive state of innocence was endowed with ability to keep the whole moral law. He had rectitude of mind, sanctity of will, and perfection of power. He had the copy of God's law written on his heart. No sooner did God command, but he obeyed. As the key is suited to all the wards in the lock and can open them, so Adam had a power suited to all God's commands and could obey them. Adam's obedience ran parallel with the moral law, as a well-made dial goes exactly with the sun. Man in innocence was like a well-tuned organ. He was sweetly in tune to the will of God. He was adorned with holiness as the angels, but not confirmed in holiness as the angels. He was holy, but mutable. He fell from his purity, and we with him. Sin cut the lock of original righteousness where our strength lay. It brought a languor and faintness into our souls, and has so weakened us that we shall never recover our full strength till we put on immortality. What I am now to demonstrate is that we cannot yield perfect obedience to the moral law. Firstly, the case of an unregenerate man is such that he cannot perfectly obey all God's commands. He may as well touch the stars or span the ocean as yield exact obedience to the law. A person unregenerate cannot act spiritually, he cannot pray in the Holy Ghost, he cannot live by faith, he cannot do duty out of love to duty. And if he cannot do duty spiritually, much less perfectly, now that a natural man cannot yield perfect obedience to the moral law is evident. Firstly, because he is spiritually dead, Ephesians 2.1. How can he, being dead, keep the commandments of God perfectly? A dead man is not fit for action. A sinner has the symptoms of death upon him. He has no sense. He has no sense of the evil of sin, of God's holiness and veracity. Therefore he is said to be without feeling, Ephesians 4.19. He has no strength, Romans 5.6. What strength has a dead man? A natural man has no strength to deny himself or to resist temptation. He is dead. And can a dead man fulfill the moral law? Secondly, a natural man cannot perfectly keep all God's commandments because he is born in sin and lives in sin. Psalm 51.5 He drinketh iniquity like water. Job 15.16 All the imaginations of his thoughts are evil and only evil. Genesis 6.5 The least evil thought is a breach of the royal law, and if there be defection, there cannot be perfection. As a natural man has no power to keep the moral law, so he has no will. He is not only dead, but worse than dead. A dead man does no hurt, but there is a life of resistance against God that accompanies the death of sin. A natural man not only cannot keep the law through weakness, but he breaks it through willfulness. We will do whatsoever goeth out of our own mouth to burn incense unto the Queen of Heaven. Jeremiah 44.17 Secondly, as the unregenerate cannot keep the moral law perfectly, so neither can the regenerate. 
There is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not, nay, that sins not in doing good, Ecclesiastes 7.20. There is that in the best actions of a righteous man that is damnable if God should weigh him in the balance of justice. Alas, how are his duties fly-blown! He cannot pray without wandering, nor believe without doubting. To will is present with me, says the Apostle Paul, but how to perform I find not. In the Greek it is, how to do it thoroughly I find not, Romans 7:18. Paul, though a saint of the first magnitude, was better at willing than at performing. Mary asked where they had laid Christ, for she had a mind to have carried him away. But she lacked strength. So the regenerate have a will to obey God's law perfectly, but they lack strength. Their obedience is weak and sickly. The mark they are to shoot at is perfection of holiness, but though they take a right aim, yet do what they can, they come short of the mark. The good that I would, I do not, Romans 7.19. A Christian, while serving God like a ferryman that plies the oar and rows hard, is hindered for a gust of wind carries him back again. So says Paul, the good I would, I do not. I am driven back by temptation. Now, if there be any failure in man's obedience, he cannot be a perfect commentary upon God's law. The mother of Jesus' obedience was not perfect. Mary needed Christ's blood to wash her tears. Aaron was to make atonement for the altar to show that the most holy offering has defilement in it and needs atonement to be made for it. Exodus 29:37. Question. If a man has no power to keep the whole moral law, why does God require it of him? Is this justice? Though man has lost his power of obeying, God has not lost his right of commanding. If a master entrusts a servant with money to lay out, and the servant spends it dissolutely, may not the master justly demand it? God gave us power to keep the moral law, which by tampering with sin we lost. But may not God still call for perfect obedience, or in the case of default, justly punish us? Question, why does God permit such an inability in man to keep the law? He does it firstly to humble us. Man is a self-exalting creature, and if he has but anything of worth, he is ready to be puffed up. But when he comes to see his deficiencies and failings, and how far short he comes of the holiness and perfection which God's law requires... It pulls down the plumes of his pride and lays them in the dust. He weeps over his inability. He blushes over his leprous spots. He says with Job, I abhor myself in dust and ashes. Secondly, God lets this inability be upon us that we may have recourse to Christ to obtain pardon for our defects and to sprinkle our best duties with his blood. When a man sees that he owes perfect obedience to the law but has nothing to pay, it makes him flee to Christ to be his friend and answer for him all the demands of the law and set him free in the court of justice. Use 1. Here is a matter of humiliation for our fall in Adam. In the state of innocence we were perfectly holy. Our minds were crowned with knowledge and our wills as a queen swayed the scepter of liberty. But now we may say the crown is fallen from our head, Lamentations 5.16. We have lost that power which was inherent in us. When we look back to our primitive glory, when we shone as earthly angels, we may take up Job's words, Oh, that I were as in months past, 
Job 29.2, Oh, that it were with us as at first, when there was no stain upon our virgin nature, when there was a perfect harmony between God's law and man's will. But, alas, how is the scene altered? Our strength is gone from us. We tread awry at every step. We come below every precept. Our dwarfishness will not reach the sublimity of God's law. We fail in our obedience, and while we fail, we forfeit. This should put us in deep mourning, a spring, a leak of sorrow in all our souls. Use too of confutation. Firstly, it confutes the Arminians who cry up the power of the will. They hold they have a will to save themselves, but by nature we not only lack strength, but we lack will to do that which is good. Romans 5, 6. The will is not only full of weakness, but obstinacy. Israel would none of me. Psalm 81, 11. The will hangs forth a flag of defiance against God. Such as speak of the sovereign power of the will, forget it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do. Philippians 2.13 If the power be in the will of man, then what need is there for God to work in us to will? If the air can enlighten itself, what need is there for the sun to shine? Such as talk of the power of nature and their ability to save themselves, disparage Christ's merits. I may say, as Galatians 5.4, Christ has become of no effect to them. They who advance the power of their will in matters of salvation without the medicinal grace of Christ to absolutely put themselves under the covenant of works. I would ask, can they perfectly keep the moral law? Evil is manifested in any blemish at all, as it is said. If there be but the least defect in their obedience, they are lost. For one sinful thought, the law of God curses them, and the justice of God condemns them. Confounded be their pride who cry up the power of nature, as if by their own inherent abilities they could rear up a building the top whereof should reach to heaven. Secondly, it confutes that sort of people who brag of perfection, and who, according to that principle, can keep all God's commandments perfectly. I would ask such whether at no time a vain thought has come into their minds. If there has, then they are not perfect. Mary, mother of Jesus, was not perfect. Though her womb was pure, being overshadowed by the Holy Ghost, yet her soul was not perfect. Christ tacitly supposes a failing in her in Luke chapter 2, verse 49, and are they more perfect than Mary was? Such as hold perfection need not confess sin. David confessed sin, and Paul confessed sin. Psalm 32, 5, Romans 7, 25, but... They are got beyond David and Paul, these perfectionists. They are perfect. They never transgress. And where there is no transgression, what need for confession? Again, if they are perfect, they need not ask pardon. They can pay God's justice what they owe. Therefore, why pray, forgive us our debts? Oh, that the devil should rock men so fast asleep as to make them dream of sinless perfection. Do they plead, let us therefore as many as be perfect, be thus minded, Philippians 3.15? Perfection there is meant of sincerity. God is best able to interpret his own word. He calls sincerity, perfection, a perfect and an upright man, Job 1.8. But who is exactly perfect? A man full of diseases may as well say he is healthy as a man full of sin say he is perfect. Use 3. For the encouragement to regenerate persons. Though you fail in your obedience and cannot keep the moral law exactly, yet be not discouraged. 
Question. What comfort may be given to a regenerate person under the failures and imperfections of his obedience? That a believer is not under the covenant of works, but under the covenant of grace. The covenant of works requires perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. But in the covenant of grace, God will make some abatements. He will accept less than he required in the covenant of works. Firstly, in the covenant of works, God required perfection of degrees. In the covenant of grace, he accepts perfection of parts. There, he required perfect working. Here, he accepts sincere believing. In the covenant of works, God required us to live without sin. In the covenant of grace, he accepts of our combat with sin. Secondly, though a Christian cannot in his own person perform all God's commandments, yet Christ, as his surety and in his stead, has fulfilled the law for him. And God accepts of Christ's obedience, which is perfect, to satisfy for that obedience which is imperfect. Christ being made a curse for believers, all the curses of the law have their sting pulled out. Thirdly, though a Christian cannot keep the commands of God to satisfaction, yet he may to approbation. How is that, you may ask? First, he gives his full assent and consent to the law of God. The law is holy and just. There was assent in the judgment, Romans 7.12. I consent unto the law. There was consent in the will, Romans 7.16. Secondly, a Christian mourns that he cannot keep the commandments fully. When he fails, he weeps. He is not angry with the law because it is so strict, but he is angry with himself because he is so deficient. Thirdly, he takes a sweet, complacent delight in the law. I delight in the law of God after the inward man, Romans 7.22. In the Greek, I take pleasure in it. Oh, how love I thy law. From the Psalms. Though a Christian cannot keep God's law, yet he loves his law. Though he cannot serve God perfectly, yet he serves him willingly. Fourthly, it is cordial desire to walk in all God's commands. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes from the Psalms. Though his strength fails, yet his pulse beats. He really endeavors, fifthly, to obey God's law perfectly. And wherein he comes short, he runs to Christ's blood to satisfy his defects. This cordial desire and real endeavor God esteems as perfect obedience. If there be a willing mind, it is accepted. 2 Corinthians 8.12 Let me hear thy voice, for sweet is thy voice. Song of Solomon 2.14 Though the prayers of the righteous are mixed with sin, yet God sees they would pray better. He picks out the weeds from the flowers. He sees the faith and bears with the failing. The saint's obedience, though short of legal perfection, yet having sincerity in it, and Christ's merits mixed with it, finds gracious acceptance. When the Lord sees endeavors after perfect obedience, he takes it well at our hands. As a father who receives a letter from his child, though there be blots in it and false spellings, takes all in good part. Oh, what blottings are there in our holy things! But God is pleased to take all in good part. He says, It is my child, and he would do better if he could. I will accept it. Secondly, degrees of sin. Question, are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? Some sins in themselves, and by reason of several aggravations, are more heinous in the sight of God than others. He that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. John 19, 2. 
The Stoic philosophers held that all sins were equal. But this scripture clearly holds forth that there is a gradual difference in sin. Some are greater than others. Some are mighty sins and crying sins. Amos 5.12, Genesis 18.21 Every sin has a voice to speak, but some sins cry. As some diseases are worse than others, and some poisons more venomous, so some sins are more heinous. Ye have done worse than your fathers, your sins have exceeded theirs. Jeremiah 16.12, Ezekiel 16.47 Some sins have a blacker aspect than others. To clip the king's coin is treason, but to strike his person is a higher degree of treason. A vain thought is a sin, but a blasphemous word is a greater sin. That some sins are greater than others appears first because there was difference in the offerings under the law. The sin offering was greater than the trespass offering. Second, because some sins are not capable of pardon as others are. Therefore, they must needs be more heinous as the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. Matthew 12:31. Third, because some sins have a greater degree of punishment than others. Ye shall receive the greater damnation. Matthew 23:14. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God would not punish one more than another if his sin was not greater. It is true all sins are equally heinous in respect of the object, or the infinite God against whom sin is committed, but, in another sense, all sins are not alike heinous. Some sins have more bloody circumstances in them, which are like the dye to the wool, to give it a deeper color. First, such sins are more heinous as are committed without any occasion offered, as when a man swears or is angry and has no provocation. The less the occasion of sin the greater is the sin itself. Second, such sins are more heinous that are committed presumptuously. Under the law there was no sacrifice for presumptuous sins. Numbers 15.30 Question, what is the sin of presumption which heightens and aggravates sin and makes it more heinous? To sin presumptuously is to sin against convictions and illuminations or an enlightened conscience. They are of those that rebel against the light, Job 24.13. Conscience, like the cherubim, stands with a flaming sword in its hand to deter the sinner, and yet he will sin. Did not Pilate sin against conviction and with a high hand in condemning Christ? He knew that for envy the Jews had delivered him, Matthew 27.18. He confessed he found no fault in him, Luke 23.14. His own wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, Matthew 27.19. Yet for all this he gave the sentence of death against Christ. Pilate sinned presumptuously against an enlightened conscience. To sin ignorantly does something to extenuate and pair off the guilt. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. That is, their sin had been less, John 15.22. But to sin against illuminations and convictions enhances men's sins. These sins make deep wounds in the soul. Other sins fetch blood. They are a stab at the heart. Question, how many ways may a man sin against illuminations and convictions? First, when he lives in the total neglect of duty. He is not ignorant that it is a duty to read the word, yet he lets the Bible lie by as a rusty armor, seldom made use of. He is convinced that it is a duty to pray in his family, yet he can go days and months and God never hears from him. He calls God Father, but never asks his blessing. 
Neglect of family prayer, as it were, uncovers the roof of men's houses and makes way for a curse to be rained down upon his table. Second, when a man lives in the same sins, he condemns in others. Thou that judgest doest the same things, Romans 2.1. As Augustine says of Seneca, he wrote against superstition, yet he worshipped those images which he reproved. One man condemns another for rash censuring, yet lives in the same sin himself. A master reproves his apprentice for swearing, yet he himself swears. The snuffers of the tabernacle were of pure gold. They who reprove and snuff the vices of others have need themselves be free from those sins. Those snuffers must be of gold. Third, when a man sins after vows, thy vows are upon me, O God, Psalm 56.12. A vow is a religious promise made to God to dedicate ourselves to him. A vow is not only a purpose, but a promise. Every votary makes himself a debtor. He binds himself to God in a solemn manner. Now to sin after a vow, to vow himself to God and give his soul to the devil, must needs be against the highest convictions. Fourth, when a man sins after counsels, admonitions, warnings, he cannot plead ignorance. The trumpet of the gospel has been blown in his ears and sounded a retreat to call him off from his sins. He's been told of his injustice, living in malice, keeping bad company, yet he would venture upon sin. This is to sin against conviction. It aggravates the sin and is like a weight put into the scale to make his sin weigh the heavier. If a sea mark be set up to give warning that there are shelves and rocks in that place, yet if the mariner will sail there and split his ship, it is presumption. And if he be cast away, who will pity him? Fifth, when a man sins against express combinations and threatenings, God has thundered out threatenings against such sins. God shall wound the hairy scalp of such an one as goeth on still in his trespasses from the Psalms. Though God set the point of his sword to the breast of a sinner, he will still commit sin. The pleasure of sin delights him more than the threatenings affright him. Like the Leviathan, he laugheth at the shaking of a spear. Job 41.29 Yea, he derides God's threatenings. Let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. We have heard much what God intends to do, and of judgment approaching. We would fain see it, Isaiah 5.19, for men to see the flaming sword of God's threatenings brandished, yet to strengthen themselves in sin, is in an aggravated manner to sin against illumination and conviction. Sixth, when a man sins under affliction, God not only thunders by threatening, but lets his thunderbolt fall. He inflicts judgments on a person so that he may read his sins in his punishment, and yet he sins. His sin was uncleanness by which he wasted his strength as well as his estate. He has had a fit of apoplexy, and yet while feeling the smart of sin, he retains the love of sin. This is to sin against conviction. In his distress did he trespass yet more. This is that king Ahaz. Second Chronicles 28.22 It makes the sin greater to sin against an enlightened conscience. It is full of obstinacy. Men give no reason, make no defense for their sins, and yet are resolved to hold fast iniquity. As it said, an action can be measured and judged by the will involved. 
The more of the will in the sin, the greater the sin. We will walk after our own devices, Jeremiah 18.12. Though there be death and hell at every step, we will march on under Satan's colors. What made the sin of apostate angels so great was that it was willful. They had no ignorance in their mind, no passion to stir them up. There was no tempter to deceive them, but they sinned obstinately and from choice. To sin against convictions and illuminations is joined with rejection and contempt of God. It's bad for a sinner to forget God, but it is worse to condemn him. Wherefore doth the wicked condemn God? From the Psalms, an enlightened sinner knows that by his sin he disobliges and angers God, but he cares not whether God be pleased or not. He will have his sin. Therefore such a one is said to reproach God. The soul that doeth aught presumptuously, the same reproaches the Lord. Numbers 15.30 Every sin displeases God, but sins against an enlightened conscience reproach the Lord. To condemn the authority of a prince is a reproach done to him. It is accompanied with impudence. Fear and shame are banished. The veil of modesty is laid aside. The unjust knoweth no shame. Zephaniah 3, 5 Judas knew Christ was the Messiah. He was convinced of it by an oracle from heaven and by the miracles he wrought. And yet he impudently went on in his treason, even when Christ said he that Dippeth his hand with me in the dish, he shall betray me. And he knew Christ meant him. When he was going about his treason, and Christ pronounced a woe to him, yet for all that he proceeded in his treason. Luke 22.22 Thus to sin presumptuously against an enlightened conscience dyes the sin of a crimson color and makes it greater than other sins. Such sins are more heinous than others, which are sins of continuance. The continuing of sin is the enhancing of sin. He who plots treason makes himself a greater offender. Some men's heads are the devil's mint house. They are a mint of mischief. Inventors of evil things, Romans 1.30. Some invent new oaths, others new snares. Such were those presidents that invented a decree against Daniel and got the king to sign it, Daniel 6.19. Fourth, those sins are greater which proceed from a spirit of malignity. To malign holiness is diabolical. It is a sin to lack grace. It is worse to hate grace. In nature there are antipathies, as between the vine and laurel. Some have an antipathy against God because of his purity. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us, Isaiah 30.11. Sinners, if it lay in their power, would not only unthrone God, but annihilate him if they could help it. God should no longer be God. Thus sin is boiled up to a greater height. Fifth, those sins are of greater magnitude which are mixed with ingratitude. Of all things God cannot endure to have his kindness slighted. His mercy is seen in reprieving men so long, in wooing them by his spirit and ministers to be reconciled, in crowning them with so many temporal blessings, and to abuse all this love? When God has been filling up the measure of his mercy for men to fill up the measure of their sins, is high ingratitude and makes their sins of a deeper crimson. Some are worse for mercy. The vulture 
says Aelian, draws sickness from perfumes. So the sinner contracts evil from the sweet perfumes of God's mercy. An English chronicle reports of one Parry, who being condemned to die, Queen Elizabeth sent him her pardon, and after he was pardoned, he conspired and plotted her death. Just so, some deal with God. He bestows mercy, and they plot treason against him. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me, Isaiah 1-2. The Athenians, in lieu of the good service Themistocles had done them, banished him from their city. The snake in the fable, being frozen, stung him that gave it warmth. Certainly sins against mercy are more heinous. Sixth, those sins are more heinous than others which are committed with delectation. A child of God may sin through a surprisal or against his will. The evil which I would not, that I do, Romans 7.19. He's like one that is carried down the stream involuntarily, but to sin with delight heightens and greatens the sin. It is a sign the heart is in the sin. They set their heart on their iniquity. As a man follows his gain with delight, Hosea 4, 8, without are dogs, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie, Revelation 22, 15, to tell a lie is a sin, but to love to tell a lie is a greater sin. Seventh, those sins are more heinous than others which are committed under a pretense of religion. To cheat and defraud is a sin, but to do it with a Bible in one's hand? A double sin. To be unchaste is a sin, but to put on a mask of religion to play the whore makes the sin greater. I have peace offerings with me. This day have I paid my vows. Come, let us take our fill of love. Proverbs 7:14 and 18. She speaks as if she had been at church and had been saying her prayers. Who would ever have suspected her? of unchastity. But behold her hypocrisy. She makes her devotion the preface to adultery, which devour widows' houses and for a show make long prayers. Luke twenty forty seven. The sin was not in making long prayers, for Christ was a whole night in prayer, but to make long prayers that they might do unrighteous actions made their sin more horrid. Eight, the sin of apostasy are more heinous than others. Demas forsook the truth and afterward became a priest in an idol temple, says Dorotheus. 2 Timothy 4.10 To fall is a sin, but to fall away is a greater sin. Apostates cast a disgrace upon religion. The apostate, says Tertullian, seems to put God and Satan in the balance, and having weighed both their services, prefers the devils, and proclaims him to be the best master. In which respect the apostate is said to put Christ to open shame, Hebrews 6.6. 6. This dies a sin in grain and makes it greater. It is a sin not to profess Christ, but it is a greater to deny him. Not to wear Christ's colors is a sin, but to run from his colors is a greater sin. A pagan sins less than a baptized renegade. Ninth, to persecute religion makes a sin greater. Acts 7.52, to have no religion is a sin, but to endeavor to destroy religion, a greater. Antiochus Epiphanes took a more tedious journey and ran more hazards to vex and oppose the Jews than all his predecessors had done to obtain victories. Herod added this above all, that he shut up John in prison, Luke 3.20. He sinned before by incest, but by imprisoning the prophet, he added to his sin and made it greater. 
Persecution fills up the measure of sin. Fill ye up the measure of your fathers. Matthew 23:32. If you pour a porringer of water into a cistern, it adds something to it. But if you pour in a bucketful or two, it fills up the measure of the cistern. So persecution fills up the measure of sin and makes it greater. Tenth, to sin maliciously makes sin greater. Aquinas and other of the schoolmen place the sin against the Holy Ghost in malice. The sinner does all he can to vex God, and despite the Spirit of grace, Hebrews 10.29, thus Julian threw up his dagger in the air as if he would have revenged upon God. This swells sin to its full size. It cannot be greater. When a man has once come to this, blasphemously to despite the Spirit, there is but one step lower he can fall, and that is to hell. Eleventh, it aggravates sin and makes it greater when a man not only sins himself, but endeavors to make others sin. Such as teach errors, firstly, to the people who decry Christ's deity or deny his virtue, making him only a political head, not a head of influence, who preach against the morality of the Sabbath or the immortality of the soul, these men's sins are greater than others. If the breakers of God's law sin, what do they that teach men to break them? Matthew 5.19 Secondly, such as destroy others by their bad example. The swearing father teaches his son to swear and damns him by his example. Such men's sins are greater than others, and they shall have a hotter place in hell. Use? You see, all sins are not equal. Some are more grievous than others, and bring greater wrath. Therefore, especially take heed of these sins... Keep back thy servant from presumptuous sin, Psalm 19.13. The least sin is bad enough. You need not aggravate your sins and make them more heinous. He that has a little wound will not make it deeper. Oh, beware of those circumstances which increase your sin and make it more heinous. The higher a man is in sinning, the lower he shall lie in torment. Third point, the wrath of God. Question, what does every sin deserve? God's wrath and curse, both in this life and in that which is to come. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, Matthew twenty-five forty-one. Man having sinned is like a favorite turned out of the king's favor and deserves the wrath and curse of God. He deserves God's curse, Galatians 3.10. As when Christ cursed the fig tree, it withered so when God curses any... He withers in his soul, Matthew 21:19. God's curse blasts wherever it comes. He deserves also God's wrath, which is nothing else but the execution of his curse. What is this wrath? Firstly, it is privative. That is, it deprives of the smiles of God's face. It is hell enough to be excluded God's presence, in whose presence is fullness of joy from the Psalms. His smiling face has that splendor and beauty in it that ravishes the angels with delight. This is the diamond in the ring of glory. If it were such a misery for Absalom that he might not see the king's face, what will it be for the wicked to be shut out from beholding God's pleasant face? As it's said, to be deprived of the sight of God is the greatest of all punishments. Second, this wrath has something in it positive. It is wrath come upon them to the uttermost. 1 Thessalonians 2.16 Firstly, God's wrath is irresistible. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? 
from the psalm, Sinner may oppose God's ways, but sinner may not oppose God's wrath. Shall the briars contend with the fire? Shall finite contend with infinite? From Job 40, verse 9, Hast thou an arm like God? Secondly, God's wrath is terrible. The Spanish proverb is, The lion is not so fierce as he is painted. We are apt to have slight thoughts of God's wrath, but it is very tremendous and dismal, as if scalding lead should be dropped into one's eyes. The Hebrew word for wrath signifies heat. To show that the wrath of God is hot, therefore it is compared to fire in that text. Fire, when in its rage, is dreadful. So the wrath of God is like fire. It is the terrible of terribles. Other fire is but painted to this. If, when God's wrath is kindled but a little, and a spark of it flies into a wicked man's conscience in this life, it is so terrible. What will it be when God shall stir up all his wrath? From the Psalms, how sad it is when a soul is deserted. God then dips his pen in gall and writes bitter things. His poisoned arrows stick fast into the heart. While I suffer thy terrors, I am distracted. Thy fierce wrath goeth over me. From the Psalms, Luther in desertion was in such horror of mind that he said no warmth or blood remained. He had no blood seen in his face, but he lay as one dead. Now if God's wrath be such toward those whom he loves... What will it be towards those whom he hates? If they who sip of the cup find it so bitter, what will they do who drink its dregs? Solomon says the king's wrath is as the roaring of a lion. Chapter 19, verse 12. What then is God's wrath? When God musters up all his forces and sets himself in array against a sinner, how can his heart endure? Ezekiel 22.14 Who is able to lie under mountains of wrath? God is the sweetest friend, but the sorest enemy. First, the wrath of God shall seize upon every part of a sinner, upon the body. The body which was so tender that it could not bear heat or cold shall be tormented in the winepress of God's wrath. Those eyes which before could behold amorous objects shall be tormented with the sight of devils. The ears which before were delighted with music shall be tormented with the hideous shrieks of the damned. The wrath of God shall seize upon the soul of a reprobate. Ordinary fire cannot touch the soul. When the martyrs' bodies were consuming, their souls triumphed in the flames. But God's wrath burns the soul. The memory will be tormented to remember what means of grace were abused. The conscience will be tormented with self-accusations. The sinner will accuse himself for presumptuous sins, for misspending his precious hours, and for resisting the Holy Ghost. Second, the wrath of God is without intermission. Hell is an abiding place, but no resting place. There is not a minute's rest. Outward pain has some abatement. If it be the stone or colic, the patient sometimes has ease, but the torments of the damned have no intermission. He who feels God's wrath never says, I have ease. Third, the wrath of God is eternal. So says the text, everlasting fire. 
No tears can quench the flame of God's anger. No, though we should shed rivers of tears. In all pains of this life men hope for cessation. The suffering will not continue long. Either the tormentor dies or the tormented. But the wrath of God is always feeding upon the sinner. The terror of natural fire is that it consumes what it burns. But what makes the fire of God's wrath terrible is that it does not consume what it burns. As it said, those that are lost will so die as to remain always alive. The sinner will ever be in the furnace. After innumerable millions of years, the wrath of God is as far from ending as it was at the beginning. If all the earth and sea were sand, and every thousand years a bird should come and take away a grain, it would be a long while ere that vast heap of sand were emptied. But if after all that time the damned might come out of hell, there would be some hope. But this word, ever, breaks the heart. Question. How does it consist with God's justice to punish sin which perhaps was committed in a moment, with eternal fire? On account of the heinous nature of sin, consider the person offended. It is a charge of the highest treason. Sin is committed against an infinite majesty, therefore it is infinite, and the punishment must be infinite. Because the nature of man is but finite, and a sinner cannot at once bear infinite wrath, Therefore he must be satisfying in eternity what he cannot satisfy in time. Fourthly, while the wicked lie scorching in the flames of wrath, they have none to commiserate them. It is some ease of grief to have some to condole with us, but the wicked have wrath and no pity shown them. Who will pity them? God will not. They derided his spirit, and he will now laugh at their calamity. Proverbs one twenty six. The saints will not pity them. They persecuted them upon earth. Therefore they will rejoice to see God's justice executed on them. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance from the Psalms. Fifth, the sinner under wrath has no one to speak a good word for him. If an elect person sins, he has one to intercede for him. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, 1 John 2, 1. Christ will say, it is one of my friends, one for whom I have shed my blood. Father, pardon him. But the wicked who die in sin have none to solicit for them. They have an accuser, but no advocate. Christ's blood will not plead for them. They slighted Christ and refused to come under his government. Therefore Christ's blood cries against them. Third, God's wrath is just. The Greek word for vengeance signifies justice. The wicked shall drink a sea of wrath, but not one drop of injustice. It is just that God's honor be repaired, and how can that be but by punishing offenders? He who infringes the king's laws deserves the penalty. Mercy goes by favor, punishment by desert. To us belongeth confusion of faith, of face, Daniel 9, 8. Wrath is that which belongs to us as we are sinners. It is due to us as any wages that are paid. Use one for information. Firstly, God is justified in condemning sinners at the last day. They deserve wrath, and it is no injustice to give them that which they deserve. If a malefactor deserves death, the judge does him no wrong in condemning him. Second, to see what great evil sin is which exposes a person to God's wrath forever, 
This use you may know the lion by his paw, and you may know what an evil sin is by the wrath and curse it brings. When you see a man drawn upon a hurdle to execution, you conclude he's guilty of some capital crime that brings such execution. So when a man lies under the torrid zone of God's wrath and roars out in flames, you must say how horrid an evil sin is. They who now see no evil in swearing or Sabbath-breaking will see it looks black in the glass of hell torments. Third, see here a handwriting upon the wall that which may check a sinner's mirth. Sinner, thou art now brisk and frolicsome. Thou dost chant to the sound of the viol, and dost invent instruments of music. Thou drinkest stolen waters, and sayest they are sweet. But we let you remember that the wrath and curse of God hang over you, which will shortly, if you repent not, be executed on you. Dionysius thought as he sat at table that he saw a naked sword hang over his head, but the sword of God's justice hangs over a sinner. And when the slender thread of life is cut asunder, it falls upon him. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth. Ecclesiastes 11.9 But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. For a drop of pleasure thou must drink a sea of wrath. Your pleasure cannot be so sweet as wrath is bitter. The delights of the flesh cannot countervail the horror of conscience. Better lack the devil's honey than be stung with the wrath of God. The Garden of Eden, which signifies pleasure, had a flaming sword placed at the east end of it, Genesis 3.24. The Garden of Carnal and Sinful Delight is surrounded by the flaming sword of God's wrath. Used to for reproof. The stupidity of sinners is reproved who are more affected with the curse, who are no more affected with the curse and wrath of God which is due to them. None considereth in his heart, Isaiah. If they were in debt and the sergeant was about to arrest them, they would be affected with that. But though the fierce wrath of God is ready to arrest them, they remember it not. Though a beast has no shame, he has fear, he's afraid of fire. But sinners are worse than beasts, for they fear not the fire of hell till they're in it. Most have their consciences asleep or seared, but when they shall see the vials of God's wrath dropping, they'll cry out, Oh, I am tormented in this flame, Luke 16:24. Use 3 for exhortation. Firstly, let us adore God's patience, who has not brought this wrath and curse upon us all this while. We have deserved wrath, yet God has not given us our deserts. We may all subscribe to Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is slow to anger. In verse 10, He hath not rewarded us according to our iniquities. God has deferred His wrath and given us space to repent, Revelation 2.21. He's not like a hasty creditor who requires the debt and gives us no time to repay. He shoots off His warning piece that He may not shoot off His murdering piece. The Lord is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any perish, 2 Peter 3.9. God adjourns the judgments to see if sinners will turn. He keeps off the storm of His wrath, but if men will not be warned, let them know that long forbearance is no forgiveness. Secondly, let us labor to prevent the wrath we have deserved. How careful are men to prevent poverty or disgrace? 
labor to prevent God's eternal wrath, that it may not only be deferred, but removed. Question, what shall we do to prevent and escape the wrath to come? First, by getting an interest in Christ Jesus. Christ is the only screen to stand betwixt us and the wrath of God. He felt God's wrath, that they who believe in him should never feel it. Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace was a type of God's wrath, and that furnace did not singe the garments of the three children, nor had the smell of fire passed upon them, Daniel 3.27. Jesus Christ went into the furnace of his Father's wrath, and the smell of the fire of hell shall never pass upon those that believe in him. Second, if we would prevent the wrath of God, let us take heed of those sins which will provoke it. Edmund, successor of Anselm, had a saying, I had rather leap into a furnace of fire than willingly commit a sin against God. There are several fiery sins we must take heed of which will provoke the fire of God's wrath, the fire of rash anger. Some who profess religion cannot bridle their tongue. They care not what they say in their anger. They will even curse their passions. James says the tongue is set on fire of hell. Chapter 3, verse 6. Oh, take heed of a fiery tongue, lest it bring thee to fiery torment. Remember the rich man begging a drop of water to cool his tongue. Cyprian said he had offended most in his tongue, and now that was most set on fire. Take heed of the fire of malice. Malice is a malignant humor whereby we wish evil to others. It is a vermin that lives on blood. Malice studies revenge. Caligula had a chest where he kept deadly poisons for those against whom he had malice. The fire of malice brings men to the fiery furnace of God's wrath. Take heed of the sin of, un the sin of uncleanness. Whoremongers and adulterers God will judge, Hebrews 13.4, such as burn in uncleanness are in great danger to burn one day in hell. Let one fire put out another. Let the fire of God's wrath put out the fire of lust. Thirdly, to you who have a well-grounded hope that you shall not feel this wrath, which you have deserved, let me exhort you to be very thankful to God, who has given his Son to save you from this tremendous wrath. Jesus hath delivered you from the wrath to come. The Lamb of God was scorched in the fire of God's wrath for you. Christ felt the wrath which he did not deserve, that you might escape the wrath which you have deserved. Pliny observes that there is nothing better to quench fire than blood. Christ's blood has quenched the fire of God's wrath for you. Upon me be thy curse, said Rebekah to Jacob. So said Christ to God's justice, Upon me be the curse that my elect may inherit the blessing. Be patient under all the afflictions which you endure. Affliction is sharp, but it is not wrath. It is not hell. Who would not willingly drink in the cup of affliction that knows he shall never drink in the cup of damnation? Who would not be willing to bear the wrath of man that he knows he shall never feel the wrath of God? Christian, though thou mayest feel the rod, thou shalt never feel the bloody axe. Augustine once said, Strike, Lord, where thou wilt, if sin be pardoned. So say we, Afflict me, Lord, as thou wilt in this life seeing I shall escape the wrath to come. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, 
in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.